Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So it's hard to figure out where to even start with this parable. This parable has caused more confusion and provoked more questions than almost any other parable in the Gospels. And while the parable itself isn't all that complicated, the story that it tells is fairly simple. This parable, for all its simplicity, doesn't work like any of the other parables you know. Let me explain what I mean. When Jesus uses a parable, his usual approach was this. Use well-known objects or people or symbols to explain deep spiritual truths. And Jesus possessed the unmatched ability to use these ordinary objects in such a way that he revealed deep realities about the kingdom of God. And even though Jesus was revealing these deep, hidden spiritual truths, you could still understand the point he was making. You intuitively understood the point Jesus was driving towards in most of his parables. When Jesus wanted to explain to the Pharisees why he was eating with sinners, he told a parable about a shepherd leaving 99 sheep behind in order to retrieve the one that was lost. It's just a simple story about a lost sheep and a shepherd. But this simple story illustrated the depths of God's love and his commitment to seek and save sinners. In the parable of the prodigal son, a wayward younger brother leaves his father's house, squanders his wealth, and eventually finds himself starving on death's door. But the younger brother remembered that his father was a good man, and the younger brother decided to return home to his father's house. And when the younger brother returned, he finds his father waiting on him. And his father welcomed him in with open arms. Almost all of Jesus' parables work like this. And almost all of his parables, you clearly see what the common things of the stories symbolize. In the parable of the lost sheep, who does the shepherd symbolize? Jesus, right? What about the sheep? Who do they symbolize? Sinners, the lost. The parable of the prodigal son, who does the wayward son symbolize? Us, sinners. And who does the Father in that parable symbolize? God. This is how the parables of Jesus work. The corollaries between the characters in the parable and the people in the real world are as plain as day. But let's try that exact same exercise with today's gospel text. So who's the rich man supposed to be? God? That seems problematic because the rich man commends the dishonesty of the manager in verse 8. And if the the rich man is supposed to be God, commending dishonesty doesn't really seem to be God's thing. And who's, who's the fraudulent, unjust manager supposed to be? Sinners in general? Bad stewards specifically? Well, the parable doesn't really seem to make that clear. At first glance, the only thing this parable seems to clearly say is that if you steal from your boss and he catches you, just defraud him some more and he'll like you again. Right? So now we can all just go home. But there's no way, there is absolutely no chance of that being the meaning of this parable. And just so we're clear, refusing that interpretation isn't just some personal bias I have. Not at all. I refuse that interpretation of this parable not only because it stands against the clear reading of the Gospels themselves, but because it stands against what Jesus says in this very chapter. The very last verse of our text, verse 13, ends with these six words. You cannot serve God and money. 
I think it's those last six words of verse, of verse 13 that gives us the lens we need to see this parable, to understand this parable. I think the dichotomy that Jesus draws between serving either God or money is the entire point of this section of Scripture. Jesus uses this parable to contrast those two differences. I think Jesus uses this parable to illustrate how the world uses money, how the world views money, how the world seeks after money as an end in itself, and how we, the children of light, are supposed to be different. So if you haven't yet, please, you're going to need it. <laughs> Take your gospel text, turn to Luke chapter 16, and let's, let's quickly walk through the story of the dishonest manager. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> as we said previously, this parable isn't all that complicated. There's a rich man, and he has enough wealth that he subcontracts a manager to steward some of his possessions. But this manager has performed poorly in his duties, so poorly, in fact, that the rich man calls him up, fires him on the spot. The dishonest manager quickly begins to think of his options. He's going to be out of work soon. He's going to be potentially homeless in just a few days, and he knows he has to come up with something. His first thought is manual labor. There's always someone that needs a hole dug. But the manager knows that he's not cut out for that kind of work. He knows he's not strong enough to sustain that kind of work, and so he, so he quickly dismisses that as an option. His second thought is begging. But he quickly dismisses that as an option as well because he's just too proud to do that. But then the manager thinks of something that fits him perfectly. Verse 4 tells us that he has a plan to sustain himself once he's removed from management. And here, here's his plan to keep himself afloat. He calls one person who owes his master money. He has them sit down, and he asks them a question. He asks, how much do you owe my master? Oh, you owe my master a hundred measures of olive oil. Well, I'll tell you what. Take your bill, mark out that 100, and in its place, write 50. He goes to another and does the same exact thing. You owe my masters a hundred measures of wheat? Well, tell you what, I'm such a heck of a guy, I'm going to let you mark that 100 out and in its place write 80. What's he doing? What is his plan in all of this? What does the dishonest manager hope to get out of doing this? Well, it's actually fairly simple. Reducing the amount of money these debtors owe his master by doing that the steward is hoping to purchase the goodwill in the affection of those people. His hope is that when he finds himself unemployed, the people whose bill he reduced will remember what he did for them. They'll remember and respond to him with a helping hand. Now, so far we've made it through seven verses of this text. And while there's certainly some dishonesty going on, there's no major problems in understanding the text. It's a pretty straightforward story. But then you have verse 8. Look with me there. Starting with just the first sentence of verse 8. The first sentence of verse 8 reads, The master commended this honest manager for his shrewdness. And with that first sentence of verse 8, the last sentence of this parable, in fact, things just got real, real weird, y'all. I mean, look, I don't, I don't have a savvy mind for business, so maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm just inexperienced, but this sounds like the exact opposite of what should happen, right? 
Let's say, hypothetically, you've hired me to do some job, to take care of some of your stuff, and I did such a terrible job, you fired me. And then you found out that right before I left, I defrauded you of yet more money for personal gain. You're telling me you're going to walk up and slap me on the back and give me an attaboy? Would you congratulate me on my quick, shrewd thinking? Of course you wouldn't. So what in the world is going on here? Why in the world does Jesus tell a parable that is this full of dishonesty and fraud? To tell a parable where a thief is being congratulated in the end for stealing more. What lesson could we possibly draw from such an immoral story? Well, Jesus begins to answer that exact question with the second sentence of verse 8. Look there. Jesus said this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus begins to explain the meaning of his parable by contrasting two groups, the sons of this world and the sons of light. With his parable, Jesus illustrates how the sons of this world use money. They, they're very shrewdly employing money to its maximum effect, but they do so for personal gain. The sons of this world use money as a tool to be used for their own benefit, even if it comes at the expense of another. But the sons of light don't act like that. The sons of light use money and possessions differently. But how? Well, in the very next verse, verse 9, Jesus describes how we, the sons of light, should act. Look there. It reads, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. You know, just when you think you've got this parable figured out, things go from bad to worse. Did Jesus really just say we should make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth? Guys, that's exactly what he just said. So how do we understand that? Well, the ESV translation of this verse, I don't know what version you have, but the ESV translation, it's not wrong. And look, full disclosure, I made a B minus in Greek, so I don't really have the kind of authority I need to offer a critique here. But man, the way this verse is translated is just super unhelpful. When we read the phrase, make friends for yourself by unrighteous wealth, what it sounds like we're saying is, Make friends for yourself by wealth we've gained unrighteously. But there's no way that Jesus is saying that. He's, there's no way he's saying, hey, go make some money in unrighteous ways, but just be sure to drop some in the offering plate on Sunday morning. That's not what he's saying. So if he's not saying that, then what is he saying? Well, I think the key is the word here that's translated as unrighteous wealth. You've heard this word before. It's the Greek word mammon. And mammon is a word that means a variety of things. It is the word that's often used for money or possessions. That's true. It's the word used to refer to the things of this world in general. It refers to the stuff that this world says is valuable. Mammon is the word used to describe things which have value, but value that is fleeting. Value that lacks eternal value. 
And if you understand mammon like that, then Jesus is saying something kind of like this. Make friends for yourselves by using the temporal, the finite, the fleeting things of this world, so that when the things of this world pass away, you are received into the eternal dwellings. Use the things of this world. Use the things that God has given you. Use the material blessings that you possess in order to invest in the kingdom of God. Because an investment made there never perishes. You hear the difference between those two? The sons of the world are like the dishonest manager. They see mammon not as a tool to be used, but as a goal to be pursued. They make no mistake, and make no mistake, the sons of this world will pursue mammon at all costs. They will use people to attain it. They will lie and steal to secure it. And they will step on and over whoever gets in their way. But guys, houses crumble, friendships end, and wealth evaporates. And if you place your hope and security in things like those, you place your hope in something that is fatally temporary something that is supremely fragile, something that is assured to come to an end. And when the things of this world come to an end, all the hope that you've placed in them end as well. And the life that you've spent pursuing them will be for nothing. And with this parable, Jesus illustrates a life valuing the things of this world above all others. This parable illustrates how a son of the world values the things of this world. And as for as scathing as this parable may be, don't think for a second that what it means is that Christians must think money has no place at all. Well, of course it does. If you've ever wondered where your next meal was coming from, if you've ever sat in the dark because you couldn't afford the light bill, if you've ever wondered why this phone was ringing yet again, only to remember it was creditors asking you for money you didn't have. If you've ever been through anything like that, you know just how important money can be. Christians, the sons of light, believe that the mammon of this world has a proper place. The mammon of this world has a proper use in this world. The sons of light understand that the proper use of mammon, the proper place of mammon, is as a means. Mammon is a tool. Mammon is to be used and wisely implemented in this world. But mammon is not an end in and of itself. The proper ends of this world is God. The kingdom to which he is calling you is your goal. And you were charged by Christ to use every bit of mammon you can get your hands on to affect those ends. Because those are the proper ends. The mammon of this world should be used by sons of light shrewdly. It should be implemented wisely into its greatest effect. The sons of light should wield the mammon of this world like a skilled craftsman wields a tool. A skilled craftsman who knows that the tool isn't the point. The point of the tool is that which the tool brings about. And yes, the mammon of this world is fleeting, but in the hands of the sons of light, even the mammon of this world can be used to produce something that lasts forever. 
And I think that's the purpose of this parable, to illustrate that exact point. The world sees money and possessions as the ends, as the goal. The world sees the accumulation of wealth and the security it brings as the loftiest ideal that one can pursue. The world and the sons who belong to it will do almost anything in their power to pursue it. They are skillful in how they deceive. They are masters of fraud and they create incredible schemes in order to accumulate as much wealth as they can. And they do so because in their minds there is no loftier pursuit. The sons of this world are like that dishonest manager. But the sons of light couldn't be more different. They know that the things of this world are not the loftiest goal. The sons of light know that there is no higher calling than the pursuit of God Himself. There is no greater attainment than to be found into the kingdom that He brings. The sons of light should pursue that goal with all the vigor and focus that we can conjure. The sons of light should use everything at our disposal in that pursuit. The sons of light should employ every single facet of this world in an effort to be found in the next. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty if you have a well-funded IRA account. Good for you, man. You know, you invested wisely and you planned for the future and there's nothing wrong with that. You worked hard for years and now you've managed to buy a few nice things. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that. I don't think this parable has the first thing to do with making you feel guilty about having some nice stuff. I don't think it's about shaming you for owning a few nice things. This parable and what Jesus has to say after it is about making sure those nice things, the things of this world, stay in their lane. The things of this world need to stay in their proper place. And the proper place for the things of this world is to be used in the service of the kingdom. They're to be used in the service of your neighbor. The things of this world are to be used as tools to bring about the good which God calls this world to produce. So in the coming days, let's take inventory. How are we using the things of this world? Are we acting like a son of this world? Are we pursuing the things of this world as ends in themselves? Are we seeking after them and striving for them with all our might? Or are we acting like a son of the light? Are we fully utilizing the things of this world? Are we shrewdly wielding that which the Lord has given us in order that we and even our neighbors might one day see him face to face? God, it is my prayer that we are. Amen.